Welcome to Everything Cookbooks, the podcast for curious writers, readers, and cooks. I'm Kristen Donnelly, and I'm recording solo today with Tina Ulaki, who taught me so much of what I know about recipe writing and editing. A well-written recipe might seem like an unassuming thing. When properly crafted, cooks should be able to follow it effortlessly without questioning it or themselves. Getting to that place, however, takes time and requires a zillion judgment calls. It also entails copious note-taking during the development and testing phases and extra thought while writing and editing. Today, I'm thrilled to have one of my mentors on this episode, Tina Ulaki, who is the executive food editor at Food & Wine magazine for decades. While at Food & Wine, Tina oversaw the test kitchen and read and scrutinized every recipe in the magazine. She also scouted products and traveled widely to identify emerging talent for editorial features and for the magazine's annual roundup of best new chefs. During the course of her career, she worked with cooks and chefs like Julia Child, Paula Wolfer, Jacques Pepin, Martella Hazan, and so many others. She now brings her recipe expertise to the likes of the New York Times, The Kitchen, and many other publications. Hi, Tina. I'm so excited to have you here. For those who don't know, Tina Ulaki is my mentor from Food & Wine. She taught me so much of what I know about recipe writing and recipe development and testing. Tina, I'd love for you to talk about how you became the recipe person you are, the recipe expert. Thank you for having me. It's really fun to be here. And that's very, very sweet of you to say. I actually had to jump into recipes headfirst, never having edited a recipe before um, when I was working for Ann Willen a million years ago at La Varenne. I was a work-study student at the school in Paris. You know, when I look back on this book that I did for her, I had never edited a recipe. I had never tested a recipe. I kind of cringe. You know, it was many, many years ago. And, you know, at the time, of course, I had no idea what I, what I had to learn. I mean, I think just from working with recipes for so many years in freelance capacities and then, of course, forever at Food & Wine, where I was the food editor there for 30 years plus, from having bad experiences cooking from recipes myself, and trying to learn from those. I feel like a recipe is a glorified set of instructions. It can be a lot more. At the very least, that's what it is. And there should never be a recipe that doesn't, that doesn't work. I mean, there's no, <laughs> there, there's no reason for it. I wish they could all be eliminated, but there are so many that don't work, obviously. I just, I really care about how things are said, what is said, you know, the goal is to get somebody to be able to replicate something that you made that you loved in the easiest, most straightforward possible way. And, and I think just really caring about getting it right. I don't know, thinking about how you say things and when you say things and what you say and what you don't say. And, you know, just trying to give as much direction and instruction where it's needed and to not worry about it where it really isn't. It's just very important to me to get it right, because I think it's terrible that there are recipes out there that don't work. When you say don't work, where do you think that comes into the process? Unfortunately, it can come in in myriad ways. I mean, I think it does come in in, you know, recipes that are poorly tested. I mean, I've seen, obviously, we've all seen recipes that are 
copied or plagiarized, but not 100%, only 85%. And then whatever the 15% modifications somebody makes to make the recipe their own, if it's not well tested, and if the testing isn't well documented, and then accurately written up, I mean, there are a million places it can fail. Um, It can be a keystroke, a plural that should be a singular. You know, unfortunately, there are a million places a recipe can go wrong. But, you know, there are a million reasons it can also go right. But I mean, really, anything can be wrong. The oven setting can be wrong. The timing can be wrong. You know, somebody can write baking powder instead of baking soda. And, you know, it'll completely throw the the recipe off or a measurement. Or, you know, if you forget that it actually you switched it from one cut of beef to another cut of beef. And, and you know, when you're developing a recipe, You always think, well, I'll remember that. And of course, you never will remember anything. And no matter how many years you've been doing it, you know, you tell yourself you have to write everything down, you have to document everything, you have to be as careful as possible. You know, you can still make mistakes. So it's a very focused process. I notice if I'm testing recipes, I'm not very good at multitasking period. But if I'm, you know, testing a recipe, I actually can't listen to music. And I certainly can't, you know, be on my phone. I I kind of have to be totally focused because there are so many things to watch out for. And you want to make sure that you're not only watching and doing, but you're also thinking about, you know, how can I make this easier? How can I be clear? There are lots of ways to go wrong and lots of ways to go right. It's so different from cooking. If you're just cooking for the joy of cooking, I find recipe testing and recipe development so very different. The antithesis. It hardly resembles cooking. Cooking is as sort of freewheeling and liberating as recipe testing is constraining. Mm-hmm. And um, I am, you know, not one to like to follow rules or directions ever. But I'm very stringent with myself when I'm <laughs> recipe testing or developing because you have to be. That's why I love testing for other people more than developing, because all I have to do is totally focus on what I've been given and just try to make it better. That's my only job. It's easier to test somebody else's recipe, I think, at the end of the day than it is even to develop your own. And if you do develop your own, you should have somebody else read it before you put it out in the world, just because, Mm -hmm. you know, you can read it, I don't know how many times, but a fresh set of eyes always brings something good to the party. Yeah, it's funny, because I remember when I was first starting at Food and Wine, and I would tell people, you know, oh, part of my job is editing recipes. And people were like, how do you edit a recipe? Like, I think everybody just thinks it's so straightforward. And they don't realize how many choices are going into writing of that recipe. And that's even, you know, somebody can cook a recipe and explain it, you know, two people could explain it in totally different ways. Absolutely. I was cooking something yesterday, and I was looking at the instructions and the instructions said, oh, you know, just keep uh, whisking. You'll see some cheese floating in the sauce, but, um, you know, just keep whisking and it'll melt. And I'm like whisking and I'm thinking, well, the cheese will melt. And I do see the cheese, but it's not floating in the sauce in any way. So if I see floating in the sauce, I'm like, oh, is my sauce too thick? You know, should it be of a different consistency? So I was like, okay, let's just take out floating. And then everything is clearer. It's so easy to introduce something that's going to make somebody go, hmm, I wonder if I'm not, you know, I'm not getting where I'm supposed to be. There was another instance where there was a test for doneness. 
and there was a time. Well, actually, the recipe reached whatever the visual test was in about two minutes, but the time given was eight minutes. So it's like, well, do you try to shoot for the eight minutes or do you shoot for the visual test when there's that big a discrepancy? So, you know, I said to the people I was working with, you know, there's such a big discrepancy between when this happens and the time that's given. Maybe just give the time if that's what's important. Mm-hmm. And I'm always one for a double test, you know, that you want a visual test and a time test. So, yes, you know, it's always on a case by case basis. And I think it depends also on who your reader is. Absolutely. My husband such a beginner cook even still. And so I know there are things in recipes when I write them that he would not necessarily understand. But I'm like, well, he's not always the audience for the recipe I'm writing. But if he were, I would say it this way. How do you take that into consideration? That's a very good question. I mean, I think clarity trumps everything. So I don't think you can insult anybody by giving them a little bit more direction, depending on also what the space is, space is, because online you can do as much as you want. In magazines, in books, there are real estate issues that you have to deal with. For instance, at Food & Wine, we, we had very, very limited space. So it was always a judgment call. You know, how can we be as clear as possible? We don't have room to give these three options. So which is the best? Or, you know, how can we maximize clarity in the space that we have. Whereas, you know, if you don't have those space constraints, you can be a little bit more freewheeling. Mm -hmm. But as far as the audience, I mean, obviously, if it's a chef's cookbook and there are technical things, you know, you have to go through the technical and, you know, the technical language is fine. But, you know, if it's a general interest cookbook or, you know, recipes for the public at large, you just want to be as clear as possible. Yeah. I feel like a lot of stuff is done to avoid a scale because not a lot of home cooks in the U.S. have scales. I know. I agree. I agree. How do you feel about looser measurements, a handful of this or something? Um, I love it. I mean, I think anywhere... Anywhere where it matters, it's really, really important to be absolutely clear and specific. And then where it really doesn't matter... I mean, of course, now I get Ajit up, it says one carrot. Like, is it a big <laughs> carrot or a small carrot or a medium carrot? And what is a medium carrot? You know, but at the end of the day, if you're making stock or a soup or a stew or whatever, you know, does it matter really? No, mm-hmm. it doesn't. Yeah. But I think we've gotten very used to, you know, specifics. But I was just testing some foreign recipes. They called for shallots. And they mm. for like eight shallots. I was like, okay, I think this might have come from a country where the shallots are a lot smaller than ours. Because after I've sliced the eight cup, you know, eight shallots, I have twelve cups of shallots or whatever it was. You know, also things like a bunch. I mean, you know, people always call for a bunch of kale. Well, the bunch of kale you buy at the grocery store is not the bunch of kale you get at the farmer's market. You know, no matter how specific you are in a recipe, if you have three people standing side by side cooking the exact same recipe, you will get three takes on the same dish. Mm -hmm. Maybe if everybody's baking a pumpkin bread, it'll be similar. But if you have, you know, a bunch of ingredients that you have to pull together and you're, you know, it depends on the size of your chicken leg or the size of, you know, whatever it is, you know, everybody's hand is different and, and the dish will be different, which is wonderful. 
I mean, I think that's something to celebrate, not something to. Yeah, it is fun. It's funny. I worked with a really wonderful recipe tester just recently. She liked things to be really specific. And then garlic, for example, is another ingredient where a lot of times when you get a supermarket um, head of garlic, it's that soft neck garlic and the cloves can be really tiny. And then the farmer's market garlic is usually this hard neck garlic in the summer. So those big, big fat cloves. So one clove of garlic, I mean, if it's in a stew or something, doesn't matter that much. But if it's raw, it can. It was funny. For a while, she kept asking me like, what size? What size? And I ended up handing everything in, saying sizes of garlic, fat garlic cloves, you know. That's good. It was. But then sometimes it seems like like some editors don't want to be so specific if it doesn't matter. They, they want it to feel looser for home cooks. I think they feel like it's less intimidating. So in some of those cases, I just adjusted everything. So it was more like your supermarket clove of garlic, not really those fat farmers. Right. Clothes. Anyway, it's just interesting, those little choices that we like think very hard about. Well, um, even on the garlic front for many, many years, time immemorial, garlic was always minced. I hate chopping garlic as much as the next person and, you know, totally embrace the microplane and now everybody grates their garlic. But, you know, grated garlic and minced garlic are not the same. Yeah. Even if you just saute spinach and you add grated garlic or you add minced garlic, you don't get the same expression of garlic flavor. So, I mean, it's really, it's interesting, you know, as Mm -hmm. we evolve how things change. I remember when arugula was newer, you know, we would call for a bunch of arugula. And for some reason in the country, they continued to think of arugula as an herb. So a bunch would be like seven sprigs of arugula. Oh, right. You know, for all of those things, I think calling for a bunch of anything really doesn't do anybody any good anymore. Mm -hmm. It can be as much as four times as much given a small bunch or a large bunch. Yeah, for Um, sure. I feel like one of the reasons, you know, if different people are making the recipes that it can come out differently is salt. How do you like to handle seasoning when writing recipes? Well, given my druthers, I like to be loose where you can be loose and specific where you obviously have to be specific. You know, if you're making something with a with raw eggs that you can't really taste or you shouldn't advise other people to taste in advance or a sausage stuffing or anywhere where you can adjust it later. But otherwise, I really like to let people be as liberal with the salt or as strict with the salt as, you know, where it's critical, I think it's very important to be very specific. And where it's just a matter of augmenting flavor. I mean, I think a lot of people like their food a little less salty and a lot of people like it more salty. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just, I only like to be specific where I have to be specific. But I noticed that in, I mean, that's how I feel in my development when I'm talking to people about recipes or cooking. But in recipe testing, in most of the recipes testing that I do for other people, um, you know, I see that they want to be salt specific pretty much all the way through. And one of the biggest questions is, you know, was there enough salt? Did you add more salt at this point? And then, you know, we always have to talk about, well, recipes that call for seasoning blends, you know, whether it's Cajun seasoning or Creole seasoning or taco seasoning or whatever it is, every brand has a different level of salt. So, you know, how much you have to season afterwards is completely brand dependent and, you know, specifying what kind of salt it is. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I noticed that there are a lot that say, you know, did you use Diamond Crystal or did you use Morton's? You know, it's a little tricky, but I love reading the Times recipe comments. It gives me faith 
that people are very, very happy to take ownership of recipes and make them their own. Mm -hmm. Um, And it makes me feel like a lot of people are just inclined to do that, regardless of how much instruction you give them. They just can't turn around at the end and say, you know, you led me astray, um, you know, after they've done that. But, you know, it makes me feel like people are much more comfortable putting themselves into their recipes than they were, say, 10 or 15 years ago. Oh, that's cool. Sometimes people pile on hate on a recipe and I'm not always sure it's the recipe's fault. Well, we used to get a lot of calls like that at Food and Wine. And, you know, back when we used to answer the calls, when people would call and complain about recipes. And, you know, by the time they finished telling you how they modified the recipe, you're like, oh, I'm really sorry. The, you know, when you multiplied the pot pie by 20, that it didn't cook in, you know, the half hour that was specified. This is actually a really good segue because I remember talking with you once about when you're developing a recipe, how you really have to be careful when you like cheat. For example, if you're writing a recipe to feed 10 people, but maybe to save some costs on ingredients and time, you make a version that feeds like two or four and how it doesn't always work out so well. No, so you can't cheat. No, you know what? I shouldn't say that. You can cheat. And if you have a lot of experience with it, you know when you can cheat and when you can't cheat. But, you know, then sometimes it surprises you. So it's, it's actually best not to cheat if you can avoid it. <laughs> I also notice in, in recipe testing, I have electric at home. And I have gas in the country, so I have the I get to have both experiences, and they are completely, completely different. I have to modify everything on an electric stove to replicate a gas stove. Mm. You know, if you put something over medium heat on a gas stove, you start cooking it immediately over medium heat. And if you put it over medium heat on an electric stove, it takes three minutes for it to come to medium heat. It doesn't heat up immediately, so you know, the timing can easily be thrown off that way. Wow. When we worked together at Food and Wine, even though it's print publication and we had space issues, we still always wrote the procedures for the recipes in full sentences. And they have changed that style to basically remove articles. Erratically, though. Right. That's what I mean, the changes. Well, of course, I have problems with that because I feel like the easier it is to read something, the easier it will be to follow it. And since we speak in full sentences, I, of course, think recipes should be written in full sentences. But I feel like if you're going to take the articles out or, you know, whatever kind of speech modifications you're going to make to change it from regular speech to whatever recipe speak you have determined for your publication, it should be consistent and it isn't consistent in any of them. And it kind of drives me crazy. (laughs) I have to say, this is how we talk. Why would we write instructions in a shorthand that makes it a little less understandable? And maybe it's just that I'm really old school. That's very, very possible. So in the beginning, you spoke about how a recipe is essentially a set of instructions. And so clarity is very important. But there are great writers like Nigella Lawson who put their own spin and totally. inject their voice. And I'm one like, totally. who, who do you think does that really well? That's a good question. I mean, I think she's probably my favorite. I mean, I like reading um, Nigel Slater and I like, you know, so many of the English writers. You know, I just think they have a a really lovely way about it. 
you know, I read the observer and they have a very nice way of talking through recipes. It just it makes you feel like you're there with them. Mm-hmm. I think I remember you saying David Leibovitz once too. He's well, he's just so hilarious. Yeah. And he's, uh, you know, he has so much personality in, you know, in his writing period. Mm-hmm. Dory's really fun to read. She's really sweet. And I mean, she's somebody that I've known for ages and eons and knew her as a person. It's just very fun to to read her because she's very her. She comes through. Totally. I think a lot of the you know writers who are very successful are the ones who come through, so to speak. You know, you feel like you establish a relationship with them. You just really want to hear what they have to say. For the headnotes, what do you like to see in a good headnote? I want the headnote to make me want to make the recipe. I mean, I, I definitely want a headnote. I remember when there were no headnotes and that was fine for a long time. And now if there's a recipe without a headnote, I'm like, "Mm, something major is missing here. Like not every recipe can obviously have a wonderful story or, you know, great anecdote or something to teach. But there's some people who just have a really, really wonderful way of writing headnotes. As somebody who has written more headnotes than I care to think about and would be very happy never to write another headnote in my life, honestly. I want it to make me want to make the recipe. If it can teach me something, I'd love to learn something. If it can make something about the recipe easier for me, if it tells me a story, I'm very happy. You know, I want it to give me something other than, you know, this chicken breast is amazing because it's made with peppers infused with rosemary. And that is a perfect compliment. You know, those head notes I don't want to read. I want to read about why somebody made this recipe, why it's important to them, what it means to them, what it says to them, what part it takes in the, in their life. You want to feel like there's some personal connection between the person whose recipe it is and the recipe itself. It's something we talk about on the podcast a bit. It's You want to write a book because you have something to say. And I guess the same with the recipe. You want to write a recipe because you have something to say about it. Like Andrea writes really, really wonderful head notes. Mm, Yeah. Like I love reading engaging head notes. And I'm always in awe of people who write them because they're, they're hard to write. You know, presumably if it is your book. The recipes are there for a reason. They should all be there for a reason. With recipe titles, when we were working together, everybody wanted to put like the best ever this on it, you know, best ever chocolate chip cookie. Part of it was for SEO reasons, because I guess people would put to Google, you know, best chocolate chip cookie recipe. It's very easy to be very straightforward. And sometimes those are not exactly the most compelling. I mean, they get the job done. You know, I mean, I think if you can be a little fun or flirty in the recipe, and still, you know, be clear about what it is. I think it's great. In a book, I think you have free range. There's something personal, obviously, about a book. So you have a little bit more liberty than I think if you're just, you know, developing recipes for, you know, a company or a magazine or whatever, um, where it's more important to be very straightforward because it's going to be part of a big collection and they're going to need to know how to anthologize it and all of that. You know, in a book, you can definitely be a little bit more frivolous about your recipe title, especially if you have a head note that's going to come right after it that will either explain it, you know, you want to call it crazy salad or whatever, rather than saying cabbage salad with carrots and pepitas or, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. So I think there are a lot of 
benefits to being able to title recipes in a book as opposed to ones you send send out into the world. Mm-hmm. In a book, you don't have to think about SEO. <laughs> so. You know, I find it so annoying that if I'm looking for a specific recipe, you know, something I have in my head that I want to make, and I look in cookbooks, I can never, ever find it. You know, I'll go from book to book to book and then I'll give up and I'll look online. And that's the only way or that I can, you know, find something and then the things that come up are just, you know, like you have to go really far to get to interesting things sometimes because the most generic things come up because of SEO. But yeah. So here's a little bit of a hot seat question, I guess. What are the top three things somebody should do when they feel like their recipe is ready for the world? I would say the first thing is put it to the side for 24 hours and come back and look at it the next day just with a fresh eye to make sure. Check your spelling, obviously. Make sure that you know, you've used all your ingredients. Oh, it's a big one. And not only used all your ingredients, but use all of each of your ingredients that everything got added. If you have the luxury, have somebody else read it. Mm -hmm. Somebody who likes to cook, read it. Like have a friend read it. If you can't have somebody who, you know, has a trained eye to read it. To give you feedback, because sometimes, you know, no matter how clear it is to you, it could be unclear to somebody else. Great. Well, thanks, Tina. Thank you. I love talking about recipes. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Well, thank you. Thanks for listening to Everything Cookbooks. If you have questions or comments, ping us on Instagram at Everything Cookbooks or send us a message at our website, everythingcookbooks.com. Much gratitude goes out to our editor, Abby Circatella. If you have a few seconds to spare, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Everything Cookbooks, which will help more people find the show. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, keep on cooking. Keep on cooking.